0: Welcome to the Hutchmoot Podcast, brought to you by the Rabbit Room Podcast Network. If you're wondering what in the world a Hutchmoot is, you are not alone. Let me give you the short version. Hutchmoot is an annual arts conference hosted by the Rabbit Room, in which we gather people together around art, music, story, and faith. If you want the long version, check out the website at hutchmoot.com, where all of your questions or at least some of them will be answered. In our last episode, we heard Andrew Peterson talk about his love of ghost stories. And today, one of my favorite people leads us a little further down that rabbit hole. Longtime Rabbit Room contributor, Lanier Ivester is a deep wellspring of talent, insight, wisdom, and grace. She's an author, a poet, an essayist, a bookbinder, a sailor, a keeper of bees and sheep. And as you'll hear, she's a lifelong chaser of the delightful shiver that a great ghost story offers us.
1: Sometimes I've wondered if my uh, love of ghost stories is kind of my version of, or much less highbrow version, um, of Lewis's Nordic myth. Um, Because as a small child, ghost stories woke up something in me that was very much akin to joy. Ghost stories themselves have their roots in myth. And contrary to the modern parlance of myth as something simplistic or deliberately untrue, something that's generated by the unlearned only to be debunked by the wise. Historically, myth is man's best effort to account for or at least articulate something of the world around them, to engage with life in an extra-literal way. When I was nine years old, my aunt gave me a book of ghost stories for Christmas. And it was a really, really ugly book. It was one of those cheap, glossy hardbacks with just, like, kind of yellow pages, you know, it was just... Um, But to this day, and I don't know what happened to it, but to this day, the thought of that book makes my heart ache a little bit, because something in its pages awakened enchantment. It was something I could not articulate, even if I'd felt the need to at nine years old, but it was something I knew was lacking in my beloved Nancy Drew books, which I'd read by the dozens. Um, For as much as I loved them, I was always a little disappointed at the end that there was a reasonable explanation for everything. (laughs) It was always a bad guy's front to cover up some nefarious business, or a plot to frighten off those meddlesome kids, Nancy, Bess, and George. But the haunted showboat wasn't really haunted. Blackwood Hall didn't really have a ghost. And the Pine Hill Phantom turned out to be none other than Fred the waiter. It was a bit of a letdown. But in these ghost stories, there were no reasonable explanations. Things happened which my Nancy Drew Detective Handbook just could not account for. And for some reason, this was exactly what I wanted to hear. It was such a junky little book, but the editor—God bless him, whoever he was—it had selected some really amazing stories. And to this day, I can remember the exquisite terror of E Nesbit's *Man Size and Marble*. Has anyone read that? I've I've read it many times um, as an adult, but never with that first heart-thumping haste to know what happened to Laura, because you know at the beginning that she's not going to survive the story. <laughs> And Hugh Walpole's The Little Ghost still has the power to raise a burning at the back of my throat. As a little girl, I had no conception or experience of pathos, but that story introduced it to me in the gentlest way. Pathos and a sense of more. And I'd like to read just a brief passage from the story, just a quick set up. Um, the, the protagonist has recently lost his best friend. He uh, died. And he's it just sunk in this um, deep grief, um, and he ends up going to it's like a house party or visit some friends who have a creepy old country manor, and they have a very rambunctious household of children, and the children are kind of grating on his nerves. Like it's not what he needed, you know, in in the sense of a, a retreat from his grief, but it certainly is a distraction. He he encounters the ghost of a child while he's in this house and realizes that she is as disturbed by all of the chaos as he is. <clears throat> so this is just a selection from that. Suddenly I was sick of the whole thing and retreated into my room, lit one candle and locked the door. I had scarcely sat down in my chair when I was aware that my little friend had come. She was standing near to the bed staring at me, terror in her eyes. I had never seen anyone so frightened. Her little breast panting beneath her silver gown, her very fair hair falling about her shoulders her little hands clenched. Just as I saw her, there were loud knocks on the door, many voices shouting to be admitted, a perfect babble of noise and laughter. The little figure moved, and then, how can I give any idea of it? I was conscious of having something to protect and comfort. I saw nothing physical, I felt nothing, yet I was murmuring, they're there. Don't mind, they sha not come in. I'll see that no one touches you, I understand. I understand. For how long I sat like that, I don't know. The noises died away, voices murmured at intervals and in then were silent. The house slept. All night I think I stayed there, comforting and being comforted. I fancy now, but how much of it may not be fancy, that I knew that the child loved the house, had stayed so long as was possible, at last was driven away, and that was her farewell, not, on, not only to me, but to all she loved most in this world and the next. I do not know. I could swear to nothing. What I'm sure of is that my sense of loss in my friend was removed from that night and never returned. Did I argue with myself that that child companionship included also my friend? Again, I do not know, but of one thing I'm now sure that if love is strong enough, physical death cannot destroy me. However platitudinous that may sound to others, it is platitudinous no longer when you've discovered it, the actual experience for yourself. And. To read that at nine years old, uh, I, I mean, I still uh, remember the way that made me feel. It was, um, it, it, it made my heart ache. Um, but my most instinctive childish beliefs whispered to me that there had to be more than what the eye could see or science explain. And these stories seemed to confirm it. I, I just couldn't get enough. I checked out everything I could find from the church library, the school library, the public library. Um, I remember it coming to the desk at my elementary school with the Book of Hawthorne. And the librarian was like, um, are you sure you're ready for this? <laughs> and you know, probably wasn't. But, um, and, and while I probably did read a lot of trash, um, my parameters were definitely being refined. Um, I didn't realize it, of course, but I was looking for these same qualities over and over again. Pathos, expansiveness, a sense of more, awe. And if a story didn't have them, I cast it aside and moved on to the next. I could recognize the first few paragraphs, and I'm like, oh, I i not like that one. Um, but my, my taste doubtless lean to the sentimental side, and they doubtless still do. But um, I wanted that crinkle at the back of the neck, the involuntary shudder, the accelerated heart rate. Creepy, I called it. But even at nine years old, there were things I knew I liked and things that I was definitely repulsed by. Ours wasn't even a Christian home at the time. My parents didn't become Christians until I was um, in middle school, but I had this instinctive revulsion towards anything that dealt with intentional summoning of spirits or horror purely for its own sake. Um, And we all know, of course, that anything good can be corrupted into something bad, and Andrew certainly touched on that. Um, But sometimes I think that we don't give children enough credit to to discern that line of demarcation. Of course, they they need guidance, but Young as I was, I think that the Holy Spirit was already shaping my boundaries somewhat. Um, At any rate, it was the unbidden, unsought, even skeptical encounters with the supernatural that interested me. The intersection of the known and the unknowable. I loved seeing the transformation from doubt to belief. I loved seeing someone move from the stuffy, tight room of the reasonable into the wild, open space of the possible I enjoyed the occasional ghost story well into my teens, especially around the autumn of the year when the shadows grew long and the whole world was full of wistfulness. Until one day, I looked around my little corner of ultra-conservative Christianity and realized that as far as I could see, I was standing alone. Ghost stories, among a whole heck of a lot of other things, were suddenly off-limits. And this made me really sad that I was a good girl and I loved Jesus, so I let them go and I put them on a pile with my Cabbage Patch dolls and my Christian contemporary music, Michael Clark. <laughs> I would have put you on the pile if I didn't. <laughs> um, my v-neck blouses and my friendships with boys and my T-shirts with logos on them. Um, it was a really big pile. <laughs> um, Um, Anyway, thank the good Lord that this oppressive influence didn't last long in my life. And um, by the time I was in my 20s, I was definitely learning the difference between a a conscience that was tender to the whispers of the Holy Spirit and a conscience that was being imposed on me from outside. Um, And a much more grace-oriented understanding of the gospel had given me back most of those things I'd so earnestly laid down. Um, Not the Cabbage Patch dolls, because I was in my 20s. That's okay, I was fine. Um, I say most, but the ghost stories themselves seem to just stay in this locked room, marked forbidden. And I I try not to think about it too much, um, but every autumn, I had this swell of longing to revisit those stories, to recover that ache that I'd known as a girl, that beautiful sadness, that made me long for something beyond the stories themselves. Well, one crisp October day, I was driving through the square in my hometown, and that longing hit me so hard I almost had tears in my eyes. I was like, this coming from? But with it came the sweetest, the most ineffable, and I would even say the tenderest whisper of permission. Because somewhere between that tight little paddock of legalism and this new green pasture of grace something awesome had happened to me. I was going to cry. I had made the acquaintance of writers like C.S. Lewis, George MacDonald, Madeline L'Engle, Elizabeth Googe, Charles Williams. And they had shown me the power and the beauty and the possibility of a sanctified imagination. An imagination which acknowledges the ways that story can open our hearts to truth. Stories don't necessarily tell us the truth, but they can make us desire the truth. And... I think the truth that I was desiring behind my love of classic ghost stories as a little girl was that sorrow had a holy side, and that God and his world were bigger and more mysterious than reason could ever account for. Not different than our Bible so faithfully tells us, but more. These writers affirmed things that I'd taken for granted about God's nature as a little girl, and they restored my fairy birthright of the what They knew that joy was always a messenger and that mystery was no threat to orthodoxy. Not that I was thinking all these things that day in the car, um, but some distillation of it just shot through my mind, and I made a really daring decision. Took a hard right, I pulled in the library parking lot, and 10 minutes later I walked out (laughs) with a big stack of books, the Oxford book of Victorian ghost stories, the Oxford book of English ghost stories, M.R. James, just a wonderful big stack. And I felt as giddy as a nine-year-old. Now, in approaching this topic, I think it's really important to affirm that we're not making a case for ghosts so much as exploring um, whether ghost stories themselves have any merit. But I think it's worth acknowledging that these stories do have a history and a source, real or imagined, and that the church has had an awful lot of things to say about it over the centuries for good or ill. Um, Without entering into a major theological discussion here, I'd just like to affirm that what's forbidden in Scripture is any form of divination, summoning, seeking to communicate with the dead. But the concept of ghosts isn't necessarily banished. Um, On the contrary, when Jesus appeared to his disciples after his resurrection, they all thought he was a ghost. But he didn't condemn their mistake. He corrected it. He didn't say there's no such thing as ghosts, you idiots. Uh, He said, it is I. (laughs) He said, a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Um, C.S. Lewis pointed out that the Bible scrupulously avoids any description of the other world or worlds, except in terms of parable and allegory, which certainly leaves plenty of scope for the imagination, which is cool. Um, But he also said that the death of his friend, Charles Williams, completely altered his feeling about ghosts. He told Charles' widow, Florence, in a letter um, after Charles' death, that should he encounter the ghost of his friend, he should be afraid, but more pleased than afraid. Um, William's death revolutionized Lewis's conception of the communion of saints. And talking it over with Hugo Dyson after the funeral, he agreed that it was probably not blasphemous to imagine that the communion of saints means more than any of us know. And that what was true of our Lord in his ascension and subsequent sending the Holy Spirit might just possibly be true in a much lesser degree, of course, of his followers, um, that they go away in order to be with us in a new way, even closer than before. And I think that hints at that you know, unseen host um, that we just can't imagine. But uh, as, as Lewis wrote in his preface to a collection of essays that was presented posthumously to Charles Williams, when the idea of death and the idea of Williams met in my mind, it was the idea of death that was changed. Russ Kirk, um, who was not only a brilliant political philosopher and committed Christian, and who actually Andrew introduced me to uh, stories very recently, <laughs> he said he said that um, amid the preponderance of ghostly apparitions which crowd our oral and historical trad- tradition, that no one has ever supported by general evidence a theory to account for them. The revered revered apologist Dr. Peter Kreeft asserts that this preponderance of the inexplicable doesn't threaten or disturb our theology so much as confirm it. Especially, he writes, the very existence of a life after death, which is the main point that skeptics dispute. In Kreeft's quite literal accounting, there are three types of ghosts, the malicious and the deceptive. Um, And Kreeft reminds us that deceptive is an operative word here. Um, But as Kirk reminds us, do not rule the universe. Um, and Crafe identifies this as anything that falls into the poltergeist category, um, a phrase which was actually coined by Martin Luther. And then there's the purgatorial, which uh, what Crafe P- uh, calls the sad, wispy ones. And these are the ones that most of the classic ghost stories are about. They're usually characterized by remorse or some sense of unfinished business. I think of the gray lady in the Harry Potter books. That was her name, right? right. You um, or nearly headless Nick. Uh, who, as you remember, told Harry that he remained a ghost only because he lacked the courage to go on. And last, there are the bright spirits who come at God's will, not ours, bearing some essence of hope or light or desperately needed courage. And I think this was at least part of what Lewis meant when he was talking about his conception of the uh, communion of saints. I'm not going to assume that everybody in here has finished Harry Potter, but... It's, it's no coincidence that in the Harry Potter books, anytime he attempts to communicate with his loved ones who are gone, he, it's forbidden or impossible. And yet, at the hour of his greatest need, certain people show up um, and, and arm him with this sense of overwhelming love. Um, and it's a love that the darkness just can't prevail against. And that's an example of bright spirits. Um, any anyway, I mention all of this in context of reading ghost stories because I believe that we're living in an era in which the supernatural has been largely relegated to the ridiculous or has been exploited in ways that are very wrong. Um, it's, it's, and I think this is very dangerous. Um, and I also think that the church has helped facilitate this somewhat. But a good ghost story can disarm all of our assumptions about the seen and the unseen. Because when there's a collision between religious decay an intellectual superiority, an inexplicable phenomenon. It always leads to what Russell Kirk calls an uneasy rejection of the supernatural. But is there any such thing as a good ghost story? And I mean this in the sense of goodness or virtue. Um, Well, to begin with, ghost stories are just that, they're stories. And as we've already mentioned, stories have the ability to open our imagination to things which mere reason can't account for. It's worth mentioning that the medieval and renaissance church had no problem with the concept of ghosts. In fact, across the board, you find this mingled acceptance and utter reverence for the ways that the supernatural intersects with the everyday. But as Andrews mentioned, the Enlightenment put an end to all that. The prevailing materialist philosophies of the Enlightenment with their answer for everything imposed a terrible divide between the reason and the imagination and it's a tragedy that the world has yet to recover from because when you cut off imagination from reason all you have left is objective truth what can be defined proven quantified classified but objective truth can only take us so far it may give us facts but it can't give us meaning which is what we're all born with a hunger for the wooing of hearts and minds doesn't happen in abstract In coming to Christ, people don't fall in love with an idea or a doctrine. They fall in love with a person. And a story can help facilitate this. It's like a low door opening onto a realm that's larger than itself. As Lewis put it, the the imagination is like an isthmus connecting our reason to that vast continent of meaning to which we really belong. Imagination allows us to engage with truth experientially, not just cerebrally. And I believe that it's these experiential glimpses that help us engage with the mystery of the gospel that allow us to distinguish between bare facts and reality. But what does all this have to do with ghost stories? Well, it's no secret that the Victorian era was the golden age of the ghost story, especially the English ghost story, uh, which pretty much set the bar. Um, and I mean, these authors that have already been mentioned uh, M.R. James, Charles Dickens, Wilkie Collins. I don't think that this was an accident or a coincidence, because in the 19th century, you see this absolute explosion of spiritism, uh, a movement that was characterized by seances, demonstrations, a huge huge variety of occult practices, which were accepted even among scientists, statesmen, and Christians. It was a really big thing. But this cult of the occult, if you will, this religious obsession with realities beyond the material world, was actually a quite traceable result of 18th century materialist philosophy because while the Enlightenment stripped the world of a lot of injustices and excesses, it also stripped the world of a lot of questions of mystery, wonder, and imagination. Suddenly, there was an answer for everything. Now, historically, it takes a while for the influence of massive cultural movements to be felt in the church. But once ideas start to trickle down, they become much less suspect. What's revolutionary in one era is generally commonplace in the next. So by the time the church caught up to these new ideas, theology, like philosophy, had been pared down to the provable, the arguable, in a lot of ways, the visible. In other words, the church had lost its imagination. And so it's easy to see how this upsurge of 19th century spiritism rushed (coughs) into the void left by 18th century literalism. Because if the church dropped the banner of the wonderful, then someone else was going to pick it up. If there's one thing that humans are dying to know is that this is not all there is. That there's more, more to us and more to the world that we can ever comprehend. And while this can be terrifying and even overwhelming, it's also strangely reassuring. Because God made us this way. He put eternity in our hearts. He created us with an insatiable hunger and an unquenchable thirst. Because we are made for more. And if we can't have our longings sated or at least acknowledged in a lawful way... We're going to live for other ways. And I think that this longing accounts for the Victorian obsession with death, um, the way that they exalted mourning to an art. But it also shines a light on the common acceptance of practices in those days, even among believers that were forbidden in Scripture. Um, this is a theme that George MacDonald took on. just He dealt with it head-on um, in his fiction. In particular, David Elgin Broad and Donald Grant are both examples of that wonderful long fondest novels, but in a lot of ways, George MacDonald was a voice crying in the wilderness at post-enlightenment theological literalism, reductionism, and materialism, all of which had found their way into the church, reinforcing the divide between the the reason and the imagination. And y'all, we're feeling this in the church in this day. Um, the very reason that MacDonald was often stigmatized in his own day and suspect in ours is that he refused to reduce the mysteries of God and his universe to what Malcolm Gite calls quantifiable exactitudes. His theology, if you can call it that, left room for mystery and ultimate redemption, and it permitted of a created order generated and utterly held together by love. Love relentless enough to burst the bounds of the literal and the explicable, not only in the incarnation and the resurrection, but again and again in our small human histories. George MacDonald, like Charles Williams after him, operated on the premise that the invisible is always closer than the visible. And that humans are always choosing heaven or hell, communion with God, or separation from him. Charles Williams' ghost story at and Sep I can never say this word. Sem- Do you know this word I'm talking about, Charles? And Septer parent? Anyway, Latin. For let them perish forever. Is a chilling and rather graphic portrayal of this choice, um, as is his novel Descent to Hell. But as Lewis said, there are there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, Thy will thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, Thy will be done. We're all trembling on the brink of a wildness that is terrifying. Exquisite, beyond anything our earthly experience could prepare us for. Maybe a good ghost story can give us a little peek behind the scenes. Perhaps that delightful shiver is just a hint of things we couldn't bear this side of the veil. If all literature has an ethical end, and I believe that it does, I would venture to say that the ethic of the ghost story, the good ghost story, is that there really is more. That the invisible is nearer than we know. And that humans actually do have souls, which is one of the things the Enlightenment sought to strip us of. A good ghost story is a wholesome reminder of our mortality, awakening what Russell Kurt refers to as the moral imagination, a force which fuels his ghost stories every bit as much as it does his political philosophies. The moral imagination is rooted in sacramental thinking. And while we don't have time to explore all of its implications, um, one one of the assumptions of... Of sacramental thinking and the moral imagination is that we are made to be in communion with the divine, and that we are made to engage with hints and symbols in the world around us, which give us glimpses of invisible realities. One of the goals of a good ghost story, according to Russell Kirk, is to free our imaginations from the straitjacket of 19th 19th century materialism, which denies, among other things, the very existence of the soul, much less the spiritual realm. But in the ghost story, the realm of the spirit is given. No matter how skeptical the protagonist or even the reader, it's like someone left the back door open and let the truth in. The opening line of of "Man Size and marble that I referred to earlier um, speaks to this function of the ghost story in acknowledging the realm of the spirit in in the face of this very 19th century materialism. Although every word of this story is as true as despair, I do not expect people to believe it. Nowadays, a rational explanation is required before belief is possible. After which Nesbitt goes on to completely dismantle any possibility of a rational explanation, which is so awesome and scary. But um, as a literary form, writes Kirk, the uncanny tale can be a means for expressing truths enchantingly. So, Andrew's already talked about what makes a good ghost story, and I've had some ideas about that too. But um, to begin with, I think that a good ghost story has to have some truth kernel at its heart, some uh, recognizable premise about the about human nature, um, about the human experience. And I like to say that the best ghost stories accomplish this perfect alchemy between subtlety and shock. Um, that the uncanny seems completely normal at first. But your imagination is being lured to anticipate something beyond visible. Shocking as it may sound, the best ghost stories are the ones where you never actually see a ghost. You might see the effects of one or even feel some alteration in the atmosphere, but with few exceptions, the minute a ghost shows up, it becomes a caricature of itself, um, which is the very thing that makes the Canterville ghost so poignant um, beyond its humor. Um, One of the few ways it works for a ghost to be seen in the story is when they're mistaken for a real person, often in a very benign way, but it, it always ends with a shock. Because in the most effective uncanny tales, what's imagined is way more terrifying than what's seen. A perfect example is the woman in black. Um, We saw the play in London, and in this deliciously creepy old West End theater. And it was a two-man cast. And there were virtually no props. I think there were a couple of crates that they would just kind of move around, visit, make it a trunk or a carriage or a table, whatever it needed to stand in for. Yeah, that play was so terrifying mm-hmm. that people were literally screaming in the theater. There was this old man sitting next to me, and I was like, oh, God, please don't let him have a hearts!" <laughs> this was slumping over on me. Um, but the movie, on the other hand, even though it had Daniel Radcliffe in it, um, was kind of absurd. <laughs> not kind of, it was absurd sorry, I have a strong opinion about it but all the subtlety of that story was lost the scare factor was so over the top that it was ridiculous and the portrayal of evil was more gratuitous than cautionary and that really bothered me the one really chilling moment the whole film was so subtle I almost missed it And I think it's because I was still laughing over that blob of tar that was coming up in the bed for no apparent reason. (laughs) I was like, what is happening here? Um, (laughs) But um, in addition to subtlety, a good ghost story ought to disturb us, upending our assumptions about the normal and the safe. To give us what Malcolm Geith calls a transfiguration of the ordinary. Some peep behind the scenes, if not a lifting of a veil, at least a slight wavering of it. The indication there's something on the other side. Because the ambition of a good ghost story is not a cheap thrill, but a transformed understanding. A good ghost story disarms our senses, it gives us an experience of what it means to believe the unbelievable, it opens our minds to a wholesome awareness of our own mortality. The shock value is not so much horror as a sudden, unbearable glimpse that shatters a limited worldview. And one of the best examples I can think of in this context is the 2001 film, The Others, with Nicole Kidman. Has anyone seen that? The atmosphere sets you up to see, oh, this is just another version of the classic history, which the atmosphere in that movie is perfect. But it's a, a great example of what Andrew was talking about uh, earlier, about the human actually being the one haunting the story. It's, it's really fantastic. So, and I won't say any more about it, except that it opens. If you haven't seen it, it opens with a scream. And we were watching it with some friends, and their dog was sitting on the floor behind, at, beside us. He was a he's a greyhound, and <laughs> when that scream went off, like Sebastian just took off and like went skittering through the house, his legs <laughs> going off <from> under the and <laughs> <side. laughs> It was really sad. Um, but anyway, I think finally, I think a, a good ghost story needs to have some echo of redemption. I don't mean that it has to be redemptive, um, because that can be forced and formulaic. And once a reader realizes they're being taught something, or even shown something, a story loses its power. But that's probably why I love the so-called purgatorial ghost stories, because they satisfy my deeply human longing to see order emerge from chaos and meaninglessness dissolve before meaning. The enchantment seems justified because the curtain lifts not upon darkness, but upon radiance. It's what allows Virginia at the end of the Canterville Ghost to say that because of her encounter with the ghost of Sir Simon, she now understands what life is, what death signifies, and why love is stronger than both. An excellent example of this is um, The Corner Shop by Cynthia Asquith, wherein the author takes you from the ordinary to the slightly uncanny to the downright disturbing on through to this exquisitely satisfying glimpse of beatitude. And I'm, I'm just going to read it at as I spoke, there spread over the man's face the most wonderful smile. I used the word smile for lack of a better word, but how to convey the beauty of the indefinable expression that transfigured that time-worn face? Tender triumph, gentle joy, rapturous reverence. What mystery did I witness? It was like iron frost yielding to sunshine, the thawing of grief and the dawn radiance of some unsurmisable redemption. For the first time in my life, I had some inkling of the word beatitude. I can't describe the impression it made on me. The moment, as it were, brimmed over, time ceased. I became conscious of infinite things. The silence was now broken by the gathering itself together of an old clock about to strike. I turned my head towards one of those wonderful, intricate pieces of medieval workmanship, the Nuremberg grandfather clock. From the recess beneath its exquisitely painted face, quaint figures emerged, and while one struck a bell, Others demurely stepped through the mazes in a minuet. My attention was riveted by the pretty spectacle. Not until the last sounds had trembled in the silence did I turn my head. I found myself alone. In addition to order and radiance, a redemptive ghost story dissolves the bounds of time before our eyes. It lifts us, if only for its duration, out of our linear constraints and drops us into the effectual nowness of eternity. Two beautiful examples of this. I'm not going to read from them, but um, A Christmas Meeting by Rosemary Temperley. love that story, and I've loved it for a long time, but it's it's very short, and you don't just have to read it at Christmas. And An Encounter by Mortstone Pond by Russell Kirk. But the last example I'd like to highlight is from a story called Playmates by A.M. Burridge, and this is absolutely one of my favorite ghost stories of all time, because not only does it have everything that I love, the crusty old skeptic the isolated manor house, the crinkling hint of things unseen, the pathos, to me personally this story feels like a thin place. I hesitate to use the word holiness, but there's such a love of goodness and a reverence for things unseen in this story that it did the same thing to my adult heart that Hugh Walpole's little ghost did to my little girl heart. It made it beat faster and burn with that unmistakable recognition of something bigger and wilder and better than what I could see with my eyes. It honored my native capacity for wonder. And I'm going to read just one paragraph from this. um, It it won't spoil the story, but this is from Playmates. He walked on dazedly. In a moment or two, the whole aspect of life had changed, had grown clearer, as if he'd been blind from birth and was now given the first glimmerings of light. He looked forward no longer into the face of a blank and featureless veil through a curtain beyond which life manifested itself vaguely, but at least perceptively. His footfalls on the ground beat out the words, there is no death, there is no death. And I think that this is one of the ways that a good ghost story can serve us well. It grants us a poet's vision for seeing things. And I don't mean seeing things that aren't there, things of which even the best ghost stories are mere hints and symbols. Russell Kirk says we're like peeping toms at the keyhole of eternity. I think that's a great image. Because we're longing for plain sight. But we're condemned by our human limitations. Our earthbound eyes are dimmed, and our earthbound senses are dulled. And that keyhole is stuffed with the wadding of assumptions and accumulated philosophies and all kinds of baggage. But a good ghost story can take the stuffing out of the keyhole. It can grant us that flash of what the ancients called claritas. Momentary, fragmentary, but hauntingly clear. Chesterton tells us that all of life is an allegory and we can understand it only in parable.
0: The Hutchboot Podcast is brought to you by the Rabbit Room Podcast Network. Special thanks to Andrew Singa for the use of his song, Perihelion One, from his amazing record, Leonard the Lonely Astronaut.